Okay, we've been working on through some definitions of defining some terms, defining some words that we use as Christians. Uh, we've defined church was one of the ones we've done so far. Uh, I received a couple of questions a couple of weeks ago, and I had planned to answer them last week, but I wasn't able to because I wasn't well. Uh, but I'm going to answer those questions today. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, you're welcome to text those or email them. If you go to the website and email, I think those emails come straight to me. So if you have a question, and I might be able to work it into a sermon, maybe I'll do that. And if you have a question, even if you're online, uh, if you have a question, probably several other people have it as well. You're welcome to text them to me or email them to me, whatever. Uh, but one question I received recently is, why are followers of Christ Christians... If Jesus was Jewish, why don't we follow that religion? And how did it separate? Which is a good question. Um, <clears throat> one thing in answering that, that I would point out initially, is the fact that Jewish people and Judaism, the religion of Judaism, are two, two different things. Jews are a race of people. Judaism is a religion. Uh, however, um, the great majority of Jewish people would practice Judaism, and if there was ever a religion that was almost inherited, that would be it, because it's very closely related with the race of people. But it is possible for a non-Jewish person to convert to Judaism. But to answer that question, why don't Christians practice Judaism, I think it'd be helpful to approach it and rephrase it a little bit as why don't Christians keep the Jewish law, or why don't we keep the law that was given in the Old Testament? And when you look at and compare Judaism and Christianity, they're very closely related, and Christianity certainly finds its roots in Judaism. Uh, the great majority of the Bible was written by Jewish people, and the foundation of Judaism is that Old Testament law. And along with the prophets and the covenants of the Old Testament, the Noahic Covenant, the Adamic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, um, those are all parts of Judaism. Uh, the prophets that prophesied about things. But when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, used Moses to do that, what we had, or what they were at that time, you had an entire nation of people who'd been slaves for 400 years, and now they're coming out of Egypt, and they're a brand new nation, of their own, and they have no law, they have no structure, they don't really have any way of governing themselves, anything like that. And God give, gave the Israelites the law at Mount Sinai. Now, I'll have all this, kind of a quick uh, version of it. But the law they received at Mount Sinai determined how they would interact with each other, and also it determined how they would interact with God. And we can divide that Old Testament law into three different parts, although it's one and the same, but we can kind of look at it in three different parts, even though they do overlap and they, you know, it is the same law, but you can divide it into civil law, you can divide it into religious law or ceremonial law, and you can also look at part of it as the moral law. And like I say, there's overlap between those, and it's still all the same law. But the civil law is kind of like our law that we have in our community today. It governed what was crime and how that was handled and all of those things. And the religious law governed how uh, the Israelites would interact with God 
and the temple, all of those things, including many different sacrifices and feasts and ceremonies and how the temple would operate. And that law is really the foundation of Judaism. And so when we ask, why don't Christians practice Judaism? It's very close to the same question to ask, why don't we keep the Old Testament law? Which, you know, sometimes people do ask that. They wonder, well, there's all these things in the Old Testament. How come we still don't do those? Well, there's a couple of verses that are helpful. Well, a few verses. There are actually a lot of verses, but we'll, we'll read three uh, that are helpful in understanding that. And one of them, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, uh, towards the, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking. And then one of the things he says, he says, do not touch the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the Old Testament law had requirements. And one of the main ones being, one of the ones that we often think about, is blood sacrifice being an atonement for sin. Animals were taken to the temple for many different reasons, different times. There's all a lot of very, it was very well laid out, very detailed, but animals were sacrificed for different reasons. And we read about those in the Old Testament. And that was an ongoing thing as an atonement for sin. And the reason that's an ongoing thing is partly because no one actually is able to completely keep the law. People have always sinned. People have always broken God's law, just, just like we do today. And so that kind of it required that ongoing sacrifice because the sacrifice was never a complete sacrifice that would take care of that once and for all. And people continued to break it. So the law, or practicing the law, could never really make a person right with God. But Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says this. It says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak to the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And concerning sin, he condemns him in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God sent his son, Jesus, who kept the law. He's the one man who actually did that. And he lived a sinless, perfect life. And he went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And when he did, when he died on the cross, he shed his blood on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. And when he did, he made all of those sacrifices that we read about, and in, in fact, any efforts to gain righteousness with God that we might do, obsolete. And Romans 10, 4 says this, it says, Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone who believes. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, making it obsolete as a means of righteousness, as a means of, I guess you could say, gaining access to God, being made right with God. And what happened is through the shed blood of Jesus, the way people are accepted by God moved from doing and practicing sacrifices as an atonement for sin to trusting Jesus, which is the message we have in the gospel. Jesus opened up access to God for everyone who believes. And we no longer take sacrifices to a priest to the temple to atone for sin because Jesus is the perfect and complete sacrifice. Made those sacrifices obsolete. He fulfilled that law. And we now believe the gospel, that Christ died for our sin, that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, which is the gospel. And the gospel means good news. And we place our trust in him 
instead of anything we might do to gain favor, which is the definition of grace, is God's unmerited favor. But at the same time, something else to remember in that is that Jesus said, he said he didn't come to abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. He didn't do away with it. You know, he didn't throw it in the bin. Jesus fulfilled it, making the practice of the law as a means of righteousness obsolete. You know, we live under grace, and there's the civil part of the law, which we no longer practice. We have our own civil law. There's a religious law or the ceremonial law that governed how the Jewish people related and interacted with God. And Jesus fulfilled that, making those practices obsolete. They're no longer necessary. But Jesus also fulfilled the moral law. Okay? He fulfilled it. He didn't do away with it. It still serves a purpose. And when we talk about the moral law, maybe a good thing to think about is like the Ten Commandments. The moral law just you know, tells us how to live. And because of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, we're not required to keep those commands as a means of being made right with God. We believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins. But the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, it still has its place. It still has a place. It shows us the best way to live. It shows us how God wants us to live. It shows us what God says is sin. It shows us how to treat each other. And very importantly, it shows us our sin. It shows us where we fail to live God's way. And that's not just so we feel bad about it or beat ourselves up over it. It isn't so we can point out to other people what they're doing wrong and condemn them. What it does is it points us towards our need for an atonement for our sin. It points us towards our Savior, Jesus. So that moral law, like the Ten Commandments, for instance, it still serves a purpose. It shows us where we don't follow God. It shows us where we need to repent. It shows us that we need a Savior, that we need to turn to Jesus. We need to turn to the one who was the perfect and complete sacrifice who fulfilled the law. And when God's moral law shows us our sin, it prompts us to turn away from that sin, which is repentance, and place our trust in Jesus. And so the reason we don't practice Judaism is because Jesus made it obsolete as a means of righteousness. And Jesus changed the way we relate to God from trusting in what we do to make us right with God to trusting in Jesus and what he has done for us to make us right with God. And really, that's kind of the way it's always been. Um, if you, you know, you could read in the New Testament that uh, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it's really always been about faith. Hopefully that's helpful in defining why Christianity is, is something different to Judaism. But now let's define, let's move on, let's kind of use that as a springboard to move on to defining what a Christian is. What, a, what is a Christian? And I remember many years ago, I was speaking to a group of people. And afterwards, someone came up to me, and they told me that they didn't like the word Christian. And I said, okay. And the reason for that was that this person had heard a public figure call themselves a Christian. And this person believed, and probably rightly so, that this person wasn't really a Christian. They were just appealing to a Christian crowd that they happened to be speaking to at the time. And, you know, I've been kind of in different places and, and events where I've seen that kind of thing happen, 
or someone uses the word Christian and they're not really a Christian. And you've probably seen it happen too. Someone claims to, to be a Christian to kind of appease a group of people or gain the support of a crowd if the crowd happens to be Christian. And when this happened, the idea was that this person uh, thought, this guy isn't a Christian and he claims to be, so I, I don't like that, so I don't think I'm going to use the term Christian anymore. And let's use follower of Jesus instead. And I started looking around at the world and, and thinking about it and kind of mulling around in my head for a while. And I thought that the word Christian is, is often thrown around pretty loosely. It really is. Sometimes it's, you know, it's given to different organizations or a school or even a nation sometimes. And it's kind of a loose application. You know, and many of those at best may have a few Christians involved. And there's been similar things happen uh, with the word religion among Christians. Sometimes people don't like that word. It carries kind of a slightly negative connotation. I've heard people say, Jesus is my savior, not my religion. And don't get me wrong, I, I understand the sentiment of that. It's well-meaning, but it's also a bit, a bit weak, a bit watered down, because your theology, your faith community, your, your, the doctrine you believe, the, the church you're part of, your ethics, your morals, your faith practices are, are all part of your religion. And those things are important, and they should be defined. They do matter. They do matter. And without those, we end up with the word uh, Christian being a word that is so broadly defined that it really ends up not meaning much of anything. And God is great, he's powerful, he's mysterious, and our religion is how we relate to him. It's how we understand him, which informs our worldview and how we relate to and understand the world around us. And the Bible talks about religion and how we should put it into practice. And it's, it's a biblical word, and it's, it's a practice. But we need to stay on topic. I'm kind of wandering a little bit. Um, we're defining the word Christian, not religion. So when it came to the word Christian, I actually stopped using it for a while. I didn't, I didn't put it in sermons much and just kind of backed away from it. I use the word follower of Jesus. I use the word disciple, which I like the word disciple. I like follower of Jesus. They're both good terms. But I kind of later came around full circle, and I said, you know what? We have 2,000 years of history with that word. I don't think I'm going to give it up just because someone using it doesn't know how to define it. And that's what we're doing today. We're defining the term Christian. And we're going to read from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and talk about what is a Christian. So let's read. Acts 11, 19 through 30. This is what it says. It says, so now those who were scattered by the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one except Jews. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. News of these things came to the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted them all to remain with the Lord with a loyal heart, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a considerable crowd. And the disciples were first called Christians, in Antioch. 
And in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and prophesied by the Spirit that there would be a great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then every disciple, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. Indeed, they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer. We're grateful for your word. And I pray that as we define what a Christian is, we would reflect within ourselves and think about what we are and how we live, the things we do, the way we live our lives. And if we are a Christian, and we're thankful for Jesus, it's in his name we pray, amen. I looked the word Christian up in the dictionary because I was curious to see how the dictionary would define it. And what it says, as an adjective, it is as relating to or professing Christianity. And that's how the word is used when it's like put in front of a noun, like a Christian school or Christian church or whatever. And the dictionary says that Christian as a noun is defined as a person who has received Christian baptism or is a believer in Christianity. Sort of, sort of. What really makes a person a Christian is receiving Jesus as their Savior. But before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he gave his followers some marching orders, gave them something to do, and said, I want you to go to every part of the world to teach people, baptize them, and make disciples. And as people tend to do, as we all tend to do, these early Christians, they kind of procrastinated until something drastic happened. And we spent a lot of time in the book of Acts last year. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, he was martyred, one of the first Christian martyrs. And Saul, who we also know as the Apostle Paul, was, was present there when Stephen was stoned. And when that happened, it was something that had been building for a while. There was a lot of conflict between Jewish people and these new people who were converting to Christianity. And when Stephen was stoned, it kind of, the, the dam broke, and it opened the doors to... Christian persecution. And it just kind of started happening more and more at that point. And what happened was these early Christians were persecuted and they left Jerusalem, their, their city, and began traveling elsewhere to escape the persecution. And our passage in verse 26 tells us where the word Christian came from. It says, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so they're, they've left, they're running from persecution in Jerusalem. There's a group of people in Antioch, and that's where they're first labeled as Christians. And I have a Greek-English lexicon that defines Christian as one who is identified as a believer in and follower of Christ. And that's a way better definition than the dictionary. But one of the important lessons we can learn from the term Christian and where it came from, one of the first things to notice about that is that it's a name that was given to Christians. It's not, it's not one they gave to themselves. And the name Christian was given to disciples, to followers of Jesus. It wasn't one that they, they claimed for themselves. It wasn't something they started calling themselves. Christians were labeled as such by the community around them and as something we are identified as. Now, it's okay to call yourself a Christian, but like the guy I was telling you about that called himself a Christian but wasn't, he gave himself that name. It wasn't something that was received by him. 
and I've seen a lot of, you know, organizations and different things call themselves Christian. And But if a Christian is, is one who has identified as a believer in and follower of Christ, sometimes that term is used by people who aren't that. And I, I'm not saying that to put anyone down. I don't mean to pick on anyone at all, but 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 to bring some light to the term and sometimes how it's lose, used rather loosely with complacency and apathy and lack of knowledge of what it is that actually makes someone a Christian, knowing Jesus as their Savior. So the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and they're talking about Jesus, and they're bringing the message of the gospel with them as they're running from persecution. They're bringing this to people, talking about Jesus to their community. And this was something new. It was something different at the time. It had distinguished itself from traditional Judaism. Christianity was its own religion. And a large part of the reason they were given that name was because they talked about Jesus. It's what they did. They worshiped Jesus. They talked about Jesus. And Christians are people who talk about Jesus and who worship Jesus. And we talk about what Jesus has done on the cross, and we tell other people about that. And this was all new at the time. And the people in Antioch invented a name for this new religious sect. They talked about Jesus, they worshiped Jesus, so they are given the name Christians. And the name Christian meant the household or partisans of Christ. And it was actually a derogatory term, and it was likely meant to be satirical. It was likely meant to be a joke. It was, it was to call someone a Christian wasn't being nice. It was actually picking on them. It was putting them down. There was a group called the Augustinians, and they were an organized group that led in the public praise of Emperor Nero Augustus and because Roman emperor was considered deity. And the theory is, is that the name Christian was made up as a satirical comparison to the Augustinians. And the name Christian was a joke. It was making fun of people who believed in and followed Jesus. They talked about Jesus so much that they made fun of him. And early Christians actually didn't like the name Christian. It, it was a derogatory term in Acts 26, 28, Herod Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time you think to make me a Christian. And when he said that, he was being sarcastic. It would be like someone today, you start talking to him about Jesus, and they go, oh, you're one of those people. I'm not interested. It was kind of the same thing. So it was originally meant to be an insult, and Christians didn't really like the term. And you can tell by how often it's not used in the New Testament. But in time, it stuck. We, we wear it now. And it was, it's even at times through history, it's been viewed as something positive. And we would probably view it as something positive here. And throughout Christian history, depending on the time and place, it's been both a negative term and a positive term. And today, in secular culture, it's kind of beginning to make a turn back towards a negative term. You know, I, I read, I probably read more things than I should, forums and stuff online like that in general when it comes to Christians, when it comes to churches. And sometimes it's even more than just something sarcastic or satirical. Christians, churches in particular, are sometimes viewed as evil, sometimes even a detriment to society. And something I want everyone to understand about that as we, you know, 
do church together, follow Jesus together. Something to understand about that in Christian history is that that negative view of church and Christians, it, it's, it's unfounded for the most part. But at the same time, it's not unfamiliar territory. That's where Christians have spent a lot of their history. It's actually a very familiar place for Christians to be. That's where Christians have spent a lot of their history. And Peter wrote about that you know, in First and Second Peter, and he's writing to Christians living under uh, the Roman Emperor Nero. And I've mentioned him before, and if, you know, if you, I, I wouldn't advise it if you don't want to learn terrible things, but if, if that's the kind of thing you're interested in, you can look at Nero and what he did to Christians. He did terrible, terrible things. But the Christians are suffering under the persecution of Nero, and Peter is writing to them. And he talked about suffering for doing good. Suffering for doing good. And this is a common theme in the Bible. Jesus talked about it too. Some people, uh, you know, follow Jesus, but a lot of people also hated Jesus. You know, you see that before he was crucified. Everybody's shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And of course, I'm a Christian, so I'm obviously biased. But you might wonder, you know, why would someone hate someone who feeds people, who heals people, who helps people, who teaches them how to live well, and ultimately gives up his own life on the cross for them. Why would people hate someone who does that? Jesus suffered for doing good. He suffered for doing good, and he did so willingly. And his followers also suffered for doing good. And Peter said, if you suffer for doing good, that's commendable before God. And that's a big part of Christian history. Sometimes, I mean, we've, we've got it so good today. We, we forget that. We forget that. And when people were emptying out of cities because of disease, it was Christians who were going to cities to help people who were suffering. Our culture is, is, is kind of forgotten that hospitals are a result of, of Christians helping to alleviate the suffering of others. Education is a result of Christianity. Um, Benevolence and suffering have always been part of Christianity. And a Christian is someone who's willing to suffer for doing good, for helping people. A Christian is willing to sacrifice to do good. And, you know, when we think about that and use that as a standard, it's, it's good to self-reflect a little bit and think, how are we doing with that? How are we doing? Christians who live out biblical teaching often live in a way that's counterintuitive to the rest of culture. It's just reality. And if you pursue a life that says, I'm willing to suffer for doing good, you're living very counterculture, very counter to culture. But if you choose to live your life for Jesus in that way, ironically, your life is going to be very fulfilling. And suffering, benevolence, they involve self-sacrifice. And Jesus talked about that as well, giving up your life versus trying to keep it or trying to gain it. And that doesn't always mean, you know, when we talk about laying down our life for others, it doesn't always mean ways that would be considered extreme, like death and persecution and things like that. It also means in everyday ways that we can actually do, that we can practice. What if a man lives his life in such a way that says, I'm willing to sacrifice and even suffer to do good for my family? What if both partners in a marriage consider each other that way? I'm willing to give up my life to suffer, to self-sacrifice for the good of my wife, for the good of my children, for the good of my family. A Christian is willing to self-sacrifice and suffer 
for doing good. And being a Christian is someone who is willing to sacrifice to alleviate the suffering of others, to help other people. And throughout history, there's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of persecution against Christians. And that's what's going on in our Bible passage today. There's persecution. And that's why they were leaving Jerusalem. Many of them were running for their lives. And ironically, persecution and difficult times have always been good for Christians. They've always been good for churches. Jesus told his followers in Acts chapter 1 that there were going to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even unto the ends of the world. And it was the persecution in Jerusalem that pushed those early disciples out of Jerusalem and put that in motion. That's what actually started causing Christians to bring the gospel to the world, was the persecution that pushed them out of Jerusalem. And whenever Christians have been put under pressure throughout history, Christianity, Christians, churches grow and they get stronger. And sometimes, you know, you hear things like God blesses us or we're a Christian nation or that's why we have all this wealth. And sometimes I think, well, maybe, maybe we've got it so easy because we couldn't handle anything else. Maybe we couldn't handle any real difficulty or real persecution. If someone wants to rid the world of Christianity, the least effective thing they can do is persecute believers and make life difficult for them because that's going to have the opposite effect. Now, if you want to get rid of Christianity, the best way to do it would be to redefine what it means to be a Christian, not someone who's willing to suffer for doing good, not someone who's willing to suffer the suffering of others. You don't want to define Christian as a disciple of Jesus who was willing to suffer for doing good. If you want to get rid of it, you redefine it as being someone God wants to make healthy, being someone God wants to make rich. He wants to bless you because you're so great. Someone God wants to make comfortable. He wants you to live the best possible life you can. Redefined Christian is, is someone who makes personal liberty and wealth their highest priorities. Redefine Christian as putting yourself first. Tell people, God doesn't want you to experience anything negative. God doesn't want you to experience anything difficult. One thing persecution does in difficult times do is sort that out. It separates wheat from the chaff. And it's understandable. There are a lot of genuine Christians who are, are happy with the way things are. I mean, you know, we become comfortable. We could become complacent. You know, it's nice to sit in a nice, comfortable, cool building and come together and hang out with our friends. And all that's good. We like our church programs. We have our circle of Christian friends. Some and we don't really get outside of that. And we all like that stuff. We just can't let it take priority over alleviating the suffering of others and taking the message of the gospel to the world and being the witnesses for Jesus that he's called us to be. You know, it's, over the past few years, we've all been through this. Some very interesting things have happened. And Christians, you know, we're not suffering persecution, but... In general, culture, people, all of us have faced difficult times. And I know my family's been through a lot. Your family's been through a lot. But something has happened in churches that is so interesting. And this is consistent through everything I've seen, throughout surveys, throughout research, throughout people I've talked to, personal experience, 
all shows this to be true. Through COVID, there was a mass exodus of people from church. When we went online, a lot of people fell away. They fell away. And you can tell that just by looking around. You can see that. And the numbers say statistics, whatever, whatever that's worth, but they say anywhere from 40 to 75% of people left church. They left church. Not just migrated elsewhere, but left. Some did shuffle around and things like that. But there's this thing that's so surprising in all of that. As attendance plummeted, giving and service volunteering increased. Increased. Every pastor I've talked to, everything I've read says that even though attendance dropped, more people volunteered, and the budget got better. Figure that out. Figure that out. When things became difficult, you know, we started to make changes and adjust, and, and people started to left. And that's not just here. That's everywhere. And I think the real catalyst in that was an attitude of consumerism versus an attitude of being willing to suffer for doing good. Say, so, you know, maybe I can't have everything the way I want, but I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to serve the best I can because that's what Christians do. And people who came to church as consumers were no longer getting what they wanted, so they left. Everything changed. And if you come to church for what you can get, if you come as a consumer, eventually you're going to end up disappointed. You're not going to be happy. It's not, eventually you'll be disappointed. If we come together with other believers to worship and serve and carry out the mission Jesus has for us, it can be very, very fulfilling. It can be very satisfying to be part of church. Jesus said, go and make disciples, not privileged consumers. And, you know, I've fallen into that. I've done things to, like, uh, uh, programs and stuff in the past. I've been at this for a while now and, and, and done things and started programs that really were geared towards consumers. And sometimes, you know, someone does come to church because they need help. They need community. Sometimes we're in a place where we need love and support. And we're all there sometimes, but that's not consumerism. That's just being part of a church family. We all need that. We may start out at church being a, a consumer. That may be how we get started. But we all need the gospel. We all need you know, God's grace. We're all consumers, I guess you could say, of God's grace. But everyone's story is different. And we do gain a lot from our church family. But that really shouldn't be the reason we show up. The majority of people start out as consumers. We're all consumers of God's grace. But over time, we need to move from a consumer mindset to being a disciple, to being a Christian, to be someone who serves, who helps those in need, taking part in taking the gospel to the world and making disciples. That's what we're here for. And someone who's willing to suffer for doing good, someone who's willing to self-sacrifice, someone who's willing to be part of telling people about Jesus, about talking about Jesus, someone who helps alleviate the suffering of others, someone who's identified as a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's identified as a Christian. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to have a word of prayer.
and close out today. And don't take that, what we've talked about, and I hope you won't, is, as chastisement. Take it as an opportunity to consider and say, you know what, well, maybe, maybe I am complacent. I know I am. I get that way all the time. And maybe I need to adjust. Maybe I could be doing things better. Maybe I could do things differently. Maybe there's areas in my life where I can do some more self-sacrifice. Let's pray.